And it, she says it's like a hologram, whatever part you look at. And that one talk is about dukkha and the end of dukkha, suffering. And the end of suffering, the Buddha said, I teach suffering and the end of suffering. Um, teaches dukkha. The word dukkha is the Pali word. Pali is the language in which the Buddha's teachings are recorded, the oldest texts. And it's a word that translates, um, that, that's rendered usually as suffering, but it's really more broad than that. It's dissatisfaction, everything from just in not being comfortable with the temperature in the room, to be raging at <laughs> to be raging at what's on the news, or 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 uh, suffering over over you know grieving over over great losses. It covers the whole the whole gamut of unsatisfactory experience, the experience that we just wouldn't want to have, but that seems to come with the territory. So I wanted to talk about the Eightfold Path today, or a part of the Eightfold Path that's usually not attended to a lot. Most of us don't come to the, to the Buddhist teachings because we heard that they had great ethical practices. <laughs> you know. Yes? Ah. Most of us, most of us <laughs> found our way through meditation of some sort, although actually I found my way because in 1965 I picked up a book by D.T. Suzuki on Zen Buddhism and it was full of koans. And I thought, what do you have to know to get the answers to these questions? (laughs) (laughs) And so it was that kind of curiosity that led me to to more study and practice finally. But I don't think it, it ever hurts to think about ethical practice, to contemplate it again, to review our, our attention to it. It's part of the Eightfold Path, which is the, the uh, Buddhist program uh, for, the, for the end of, of suffering. And so what, I, wanted, what I, I thought I would do would be to just review where ethical practices stand in relation to the Buddhist teaching. Because often they're presented as sort of a side show be good, you know, don't kill, don't steal, don't lie, you know, and, uh, and then meditate. Um, it's often how it comes across. But, but ethical practices, in some ways, are at the heart of the Buddhist teaching, even more so than, than uh, the meditation. If you look at the Eightfold Path, right speech, right action and right livelihood, it's three-eighths of the path. It's not a one-fold path. So the Buddha said he taught about suffering and the end of suffering, and that is generally summarized throughout the the Pali teachings in a, a little formula which runs something like, such is suffering, such the origin of suffering such the cessation of suffering, and such the path to the cessation of suffering. And in a few places, those are referred to as the Four Noble Truths. But they're not propositional truths in the sense, you know, the sky is blue, or two plus two is four. They're truths 
truths. They're subjective truths of experience. And to understand where the, the ethical practices fit, it's worth it to take a look at, at this formulation because this is the way he formulated his insight into uh, suffering and dissatisfaction, the, the dissatisfaction and suffering we find in life. The first, each of these, each of these truths, truths that you know, Stephen Batchelor is calling them these days just the four, because they're only referred to as truths in a few places, and and the thought of some scholars is that it's a later uh, labeling of this formula. But each, so I, and I think of them as four teachings. The first of these, these teachings is uh, the teaching about dukkha. And each of them has a task that's associated with it, and it's to understand dukkha. That's the, understand, that's the task for the first of these teachings, the first truth. And the Buddha doesn't give a definition of dukkha. He doesn't, it's not a dictionary definition. If you go to the Pali Dictionary, it's like pages long. But what he does instead is to give a list of experiences, which are which are generally not what we what we. So here's the list: birth. Mark Twain, Mark Twain says, "I wonder why people rejoice at birth, and and grieve at death." He says, "He says I guess it's because they're not the parties involved." A birth, you know, the the story is that we that we all uh, started with a big no. (laughs) Birth is is dukkha, aging is unsatisfactory, sickness, (laughs) sickness. And death, pain, sorrow, lamentation, distress, despair, not getting what you want, getting what you don't want, losing what you cherish. Leave anything out? <laughs> you know, these are all on our dance card. There's, there's none of them that we miss out on. These are, if you look at, at the list, when I looked at the list closely, I thought, you know, what's interesting, there's nothing pleasant on that list. <laughs> you know, parties aren't on that list. Ice cream, well, maybe not ice cream. That'd be on my list. Ice, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a list of unpleasant experience. And to understand that these are, this is the locus of suffering in our lives, these Unpleasant. There are different kinds of unpleasant experience, but it's a list of them. And they are not in themselves dukkha. They're just, it's just unpleasant experience. The second of the truths, the second of the teachings, is the teaching on the origin of, of uh, dissatisfaction, the origin of suffering. And the Buddha uses the word tanha, which is um, 
a word that's translated often as craving. It's translated in a lot of ways, desire, craving, but it's translated as a subjective, an effort at a subjective. Uh, and it's kind of hard to, to f- figure out. Sometimes tanha, I think literally, is translated as thirst, so it's a particular kind of desire, a particular kind of craving that um, feels like thirst. You know, in the same way that the Eskimos have, I don't know, 40, 30-something different words for snow, in Pali there are more than 20, 25 words that we would translate just as desire. So it's kind of hard to pin it down what this experience is. I find it really helpful to think of it in terms of our evolutionary heritage, our inheritance uh, as evolved creatures. If we had an ancestor, well, we wouldn't have had an ancestor. If we had an ancestor who was not interested in survival, they probably wouldn't last long enough to pass on their genes. So over the, the, what, 5,000 or so generations of humans, and my gosh, all the generations before that, survival is built into the organism. Pretty much. It's automatic. We, We all respond. One of the, tanha comes in three flavors. One of them, bhava tanha, B-H-A-V-A, bhava tanha. And it's often translated as the desire for being, to be, to become. It's the desire, it's that survival impulse, that wanting to be something, to be in the future, to continue, to last. We want to be something, you know, maybe it's just the owner of a new Porsche Cayenne hybrid. (laughs) But we want to be reborn as something. And it, it uh, you know, we, we uh, look for, we see ourselves continuing through our children, through whatever legacy, we want to leave a legacy. And, and we even will fantasize life after life. So maybe heaven realms, or, you know, some rebirth somewhere. Just, just... As a way to, you know, it's 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 a powerful, powerful drive. I think that some of the uh, the fantasies about future lives are are rooted in the in the desire to be, it comes out of our the projections of our desire to become, to survive, and it's built into the organism. We don't do that. It. It, it's volunteers, right? I mean, you don't have to say, I think I'll try to survive. It's been very, very powerful for us as a species, maybe too powerful. We have this brain. We want this future that we want to be pleasant. We just want it to be pleasant. It's not any particular pleasant experience. We just want it pleasant, probably because pleasant experience is 
less likely to damage our organism. It's, it's, you know, and when we think of the futures we want, what we want to become, we want it to be pleasant. We don't wake up in the morning and say, what can I do to irritate myself today? You know that restaurant we went to last week was so horrible? Let's go there again. You know, the food was lousy, the service was bad, you know, and the portions were small. Is that a Woody Allen joke? <laughs> And I think that's, that's built into the organism, too. Vibhavatanha is the third, and that's the opposite of becoming. It's to make the unpleasant stuff go away, right? I mean, it could be trivial. It could be, you know, turning the thermostat up when it's a little cool. It could be taking an aspirin for a headache. Oh, that dates me, doesn't it? Nobody takes aspirin anymore. <laughs> Oh, I, I see it dates us all. <laughs> yeah. So it could be it could be something small, make it go away. You know, it could be anger and rage. It could be you know, eventually blowing up yourself and a bus full of people who are who have to be made to go away. It can be uh, everything from small to large. Same with uh, sense pleasure. So these things, I think, are built into the organism. We don't do them. They happen. The Buddha says about the second truth, or the second teaching, the tanha is to be abandoned. It's not that these impulses are bad or wrong. Like I say, they've been pretty successful for us as a species, but they don't leave us with peace of mind. But when you take these kinds of built-in desires, wants, tanha, and you match it up with that list of unpleasant experience, you get dukkha. Dukkha, suffering, is a composite experience. It's a composite experience that's, that's made of unpleasant experience and the desire for us to overcome that, to just not be comfortable with it. It's really deep if you, if you explore. Just we, we prefer pleasant experience. And when it's unpleasant, make it go away and make it more pleasant. Bhikkhu Bodhi says we spend all our time trying to increase our pleasant experience, decrease our unpleasant experience, and figure out just how all this relates to me. <laughs> so dukkha is a composite experience of our being, our, the way we are, and the experience that we encounter. Tanha is to be abandoned. That's the second of the teachings. The third of the teachings is about the cessation of dukkha, the cessation specifically of tanha. The Buddha says that, that the cessation is the cessation of that very craving, that very tanha. That it's, that's the end of suffering.
And the fourth truth, and this is to be realized. This is the task. And the fourth truth is the, the path to the end of suffering, which is to be cultivated. Now, it's described as a path, and there are, there are different ways of regarding the path. I've, I've heard some senior teachers say the path is different from the goal. Like the road to the Grand Canyon is not the Grand Canyon. And then I've heard teachers say, the path is the journey. The journey is the path. So you can take your choice. <laughs> Actually, it's, it's one of these things about the teachings. You, you do have to figure it out for yourself. Because, you know, in the, in, in the West, we have this deeply embedded... Uh, original sin problem, which shows up in us as the inner critic. You got the inner critic going, anybody? You know, we're, we usually have a pretty healthy inner critic, and and you know, I don't know quite what to say about. That. I I think that's that's part of the the cultural milieu. It just comes along. Um, I've been combating the inner critic recently with, uh, any of you remember a guy named Lord Buckley? He he was a comedian, black comedian, nightclub guy in the 40s, 50s. And he did a a piece called uh, Martin's Horse. And it's the long shot horse that wins the horse race in the end. And the, the... they asked the jockey what the what the secret. This is this horse was supposed to be, you know, not even get out of the starting gate. He said, "Well, we came down the stretch, and you know, I could have I could have said, you idiot, move faster, go faster. You're second. Don't you care? Don't you want to?" He said, "But what I said was, you're just the most beautiful horse. You're doing great, but a little better. Come on, a little better, baby." You know, you are just fabulous, and you're working so good, and you're moving so well, but a little better, a little better. So I've been countering the, and of course the horse won. Um, I've been countering the inner critic with the, uh, with the inner cheerleader. So you might cultivate an inner cheerleader. Just think about that as a uh, rooting for yourself. Cultivating the, the, the path is interesting because the path is not eight separate things. It's one way of being. In my group in Davis, we, we like to think of it as a basketball. And I think I've used the basketball example before. You can't separate these things out. You know, the eightfold basketball is a sphere. It's uh, about 15 inches across, weighs a couple pounds, made of rubber, brown on the outside, got a lot of dimples, black stripes on it, filled with compressed air. Is that eight? But you can't play with just the brown. And the Eightfold Path is is just, it's that hologram. It's different ways of looking at the way of being without (coughs) suffering. Let me just rattle off the components. And I'm I'm going to translate, there's a word that goes with each of them, and it's sama. And it's translated usually as right. So, So the Eightfold Path would be 
right understanding, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. Now that word sama is translated as right, which is unfortunate because it suggests wrong. There is right speech. There is right understanding. And really what, what we're talking about, since this is the path to the cultivation, the path of cultivation of cessation, it's the path of living while abandoning tanha, while not falling for the bait, while not needing it to be pleasant all the time, recognizing that that's the response of our organism. So right understanding, you know, on, on the, the wheel up here, it's translated as wise understanding, wise intention. Some people translate it as skillful. But if you don't need a sentence, if you, if you can stand a whole sentence, it's the, it's the understanding, it's the speech, it's the, the practice that enables us to abandon tanha, that helps us through the cessation of tanha. Presumably, when you stop acting out on it all the time, it sort of stops showing up. That's the Buddha's, that's the Buddha's teaching. <coughs> but the heart of the path, wow, right, underst- right understanding is the understanding of how to do it. <clears throat> it's the ability to, to recognize tanha. Do we even recognize it? You know, we can talk about it. The suffering, when we, when we came into the room and it was a little cool, and we were all sort of going, oh, it's a little cool, you know. Um, there was that physical sensation of coolness, and then there was our resistance to it. It's the resistance that's the tanha there. And it makes the experience... You know, experience of dukkha. When we don't get what we want, can we live with that or not? How unhappy is it to not get what we want, to lose what we cherish? We all know about impermanence, but, you know, what happened to my... (laughs) Oh, I broke my... I lost my... So we know about it, but those impulses still arise. And they, they arose for the Buddha as well. You know, there are, study, there, there are suttas where, the, where Mara, the personification of Tanha, shows up. Or a fully enlightened being. Fully enlightened being. He experienced illness. He got old. He said, my body is held together like an old cart with leather straps. And of course he died, fully enlightened. So the, the birth, the aging, the sickness, not, the, not inherently the dukkha, it's the, the relationship to it. And the cessation of that, understanding that, being able to recognize that. Right intention would be the intention to not take up the bait, whatever the object is. You know, the, the, 
promised state in the future, the, the imagined pleasurable experience. Renunciation is usually the way it's called. Abandonment. It's not that tanha is not going to happen. You know, neuroscience is fairly clear about the fact that our intention, our desire, arises about almost as much as a third of a second before we know it. And then we, th- we think that we... Th- <laughs> you know, when you sit and follow your breath, the thoughts just show up on their own. You, know, you don't think the thoughts, the thoughts sort of think you. Right? I mean, we just get to watch, and, but we can get reactive. You know, we think of, I don't know, I don't want to suggest anybody, but you know, we, a thought of some difficult situation, person arriving, boy, tension, we, you know, we get reactive to it. Tanha rises, and we can abandon it. We can step back from it. I always think of the cop, you know. Step back from that desire. <laughs> Nothing to see here. Move right along. <laughs> and of course, right intention would be the cultivation of the Brahma-viharas. It would be the, the cultivation of friendliness and compassion, equanimity. And then we get the ethical elements. Right speech, right action, right livelihood. These are the ethical elements, and it's three parts of the path. These are the ways of living in the world without taking tanha's bait, without causing suffering, without making it worse. The last three elements, I'll just touch on them short, quickly. Right effort, skillful effort, it's the effort to abandon tanha, to not take up, to not fall. Usually it's described as cultivating wholesome states, you know, sustaining the wholesome states that already exist, abandoning the ones that don't, you know, not letting the ones the unwholesome states arise. But what do we mean by wholesome? Well, it's the ta- it's tanha. Recognize and it's an effort because going with the flow is going with the tanha. You know, go with the pl- if it feels good, do it. You know, how can this be wrong if it feels so good? And the meditation elements, samasati and samasamadhi, right, right mindfulness. Right mindfulness isn't just mindfulness about the sensations of our breathing. We use the sensations of our breathing to train our ability to pay attention. It's, it's about paying attention to tanha, to the arising of intention particularly the, the craving, the need to be satisfied. The need to be satisfied. Being able to recognize that. And, and, and mindfulness and stability are the practices that the Buddha, that the Buddha proposed for, for learning to recognize these things in our experience. So that when we live off the cushion, in our speech, in our action, in our livelihood, 
we can live without making things worse for ourselves and others. So let me talk about these because these, you know, for me, certainly in the past recent years, have been a much more, a much richer source of insight than even what happens on, on the cushion. Because, I mean, how much time do you spend on the cushion even when you go on retreat? You know, and how much time are you walking around in the world? And I, I think that, the, that, that these are insight practices, not just morality practices. They're insight practices. Let's take right speech. Actually, these things are rendered, by the way, through the precepts. And the precepts, most of you guys know the precepts, I've been working with them for years. But not everybody knows that the first four of the precepts are the exact same precepts that the giants took, the vows that the giants took. These were ambient in the culture. And and I guess the shorthand version of, of referring to don't kill, don't steal, don't engage in sexual behavior that hurts yourself or others, and don't lie. Those were the four vows that the giants took. And the Buddha did with these precepts what he did with a lot of the language at the time. He would flip the meaning. So, for example, at, at his time, the, the word Brahman referred to members of the priestly caste who were responsible for providing spiritual guidance and interceding between humans and the gods and performing the rituals that kept the universe on track. And this was a a status that you were born to. So it was an you know, you were you were born to the to the and this was the pure caste. And the Buddha said, Yeah, Brahman, hmm, not what you're born to. One is a Brahman who acts without the corruptions of the heart, who can act without greed, hatred, and delusion. Such a, you know, so a Brahman had to do with character. He talked about, uh, he, he took karma, which it, for the Brahmins was, was the, the performance of ritual. It was a word that referred specifically to the performance of ritual, to behavior, the outward what you did. And it referred to what the universe comes back at you with. And he said, karma is intention. It almost doesn't matter what you do. It matters what your intention is. We say, you know, the purpose of the precepts is not to cause harm. But, you know, the doctor who was doing the surgery on, on the surgical procedure on Joan Rivers wasn't trying to cause harm, should he not? do surgery because the possibility of harm is there? It's not, it's the intention that you bring. So the question is, what is the intention that we bring? And that's that's where we reach, uh, where we come up with the the insight into ourselves. So let's, let's take a look at right speech. In the, in the precepts, it's usually presented as not speak falsely. And, and the Buddha has some guidelines for 
what right speech is. It's speech that's true, kind, helpful, and timely. And he talks about what speech is not. So it's harsh speech, divisive speech, false speech, and idle chatter. But these things are not bright lines. What, what is idle chatter? Talking about the weather in the elevator? Or, or extending some kind of, you know, verbal gesture to someone who's uneasy? It could be kind, it could be, it could be serving a purpose. Idle chatter isn't something that you can recognize from the outside. Depends on the intention. And actually, you know, the fundamentalist position would be follow these rules and, and then you're good. Well, you know, we're in the realm of judgment. We're in the realm of judgment. We're in the realm of right and wrong. And the Buddha was not interested in that. He wasn't interested in, in, in right or wrong. I can think of situations, I've probably described them here before, where, where speaking falsely is the ethical thing to do. You know, when the Nazis knock on the door and say, is Anne Frank here? You say. Well, it depends on what you mean by is. <laughs> Didn't work for Bill Clinton. <laughs> Wouldn't work for Anne Frank. And yet I've heard, I've heard uh, senior teachers say that you know, that question has to be finessed. That if you just say, huh, what, no, are you kidding, go away. If you lie about that, that somehow whoever it is that's making a list and checking it twice will know. Or, or the whatever forces of karma are out there. Yeah. But it can be a gesture of the heart. One of my, one of my dear friends is a, works in hospice, and she was working with a woman for some weeks, and they become fairly close. And um, on the day, it turned out the day that, that she was to die, she, was, she said to Till then she said, I know you're a Buddhist chaplain, but you do believe in Jesus Christ and the resurrection, don't you? <laughs> and Lynn said, of course. And she said you could see her just relax because her friend was not going to go to hell. So the truth of that is a truth of the heart, not a propositional truth. So the issue with speech, it's speech that does not take tanha's bait, that does not further tanha, that does not further that craving for pleasant being in the future, that doesn't um, promote greed, hatred, and delusion. And it requires monitoring our intention, because it's not... I mean, you know, right speech, people look for a bright line. You know, don't talk about people who aren't present. That's wrong speech. Don't, this is right speech. 
but it's about a heart quality. And so when I say it's an insight practice, it's a practice of looking at your, you know, it's directing your, your intention, your motivation, and monitoring that. You know, how many times, you know, you ever been in a situation where you, you're, you're, you know, the, the mouth engages, the clutch goes, you know, and you find yourself saying, I can't believe I'm saying this, and then you finish? <laughs> you know. Right speech is difficult because it requires ongoing mindfulness of our intention. You can't separate these things out. It's not like we've got to, you know, don't lie, don't steal, don't, you know, and I mean, the other precepts, if we look at the, if we look at the other ones, uh, first one is rendered usually as, well, most primitive level, don't kill. Often it's taught as don't kill. But, but the Pali word is panatipata, which means not to strike at. So the Buddha flips this one again too. He says it's not what you do, it's the intention. You know? I think sometimes that that very basic level of right and wrong teaching is it's like what we do for children. We tell a child, don't run into the street. Don't run into the street. Cross at the corner. Right? And most of us nowadays can navigate a street. We don't have to cross at the corner. But for a, you know, a five-year-old, you know, don't don't run into the street, and and you know, loud speech. I don't know, harsh, but certainly, hey. <laughs> you know. But at a certain point, we learn the terrain and we learn how to navigate that. So that first, that first precept which is these other four precepts that, that interpret right action. That first precept is about intention, our intention. The Buddha allowed his monks to defend themselves when they walked between, you know, through the jungles, but not out of anger. It was like Sharon Salzberg, you know, the story of Sharon when she was in, uh, I think she just been to see Deepa Ma and was coming back in a, in a, I don't think they call them rickshaws, what are they? You know, one of those little hand, and somebody tried to get in with her, and there was a struggle on her, and they, she got away, and she went to her, her uh, teacher and told him about what happened, and he said, well, you should have taken your umbrella and hit him with all the loving kindness you could muster. <laughs> So panatipata is striking at with the heart, not to kill. Am I supposed to allow the black widow spiders in my garden that crawl all over my granddaughter's tricycle? It's a koan. It's an inside practice that's a koan. There's not a bright line here.
anatipata. It's the first of the precepts. And it's, it's aimed at restraining that impulse of ill will. Irritation, anger, just to restrain it. And it's for the purposes of practice. We work on that. For the purposes of practice, I vow to follow my breath. How'd that go? You know, we sit and three or four breaths into it, um, five or six, maybe. Well, we're practicing our intention. We're practicing our intention. The second of the precepts is described as, uh, well, the word is adina dana, dana. It's not dana, not taking what is not freely given. It's not just not stealing. It's the impulse of the heart. It's restraining that impulse of the heart. So it's not, um, you know, I, I walk my dogs and go by a tennis court sometimes, and one, day, one evening there was a tube of tennis balls that were sitting right next to the tennis court, and my dogs like tennis balls. <laughs> we could have a good time with three tennis balls. But it was interesting because I saw that and I watched that thought arise and, I, and just let it go. Not because, you know, there was anybody watching, or, but it was about me. It was about my own response. It's, a pra- it's not just a practice, just, you know, some, it's not just about not stealing. If you're, if you're on a levee and you see some guy drowning in the canal and there's a pickup truck with a rope in the back. You don't say, Who's, who owns this? You know, can we text, text them to get permission to... You just grab it. So it's not a bright line about not taking. It's about monitoring your own intention, the, un- the quality of your heart. In this case, the impulse to greed. The third and the fifth, the fourth precept is about speech. We talked a little bit about speech, the right speech. But the, 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 the third and the fifth are interesting because they're sort of reciprocals of each other. One, one is, well, the third precept is usually taught as refraining from harmful sexual, sexuality, unskillful sexuality. The word is kamesu, which comes from kama. It's about sensual and sexual misconduct, misuse. You know, I think that for monks, you know, you take a monk who's 18 or 20 and put him in robes and say, one of the things that you can't do is touch a woman. So, you know, pretty soon what becomes the focus isn't just sensual. It's not eating to make yourself feel better. You know, it becomes the, the central focus. For, but I think that you know, sensual misconduct is, is a way of dealing with unpleasant experience. When our experience is unpleasant, when we're facing dukkha, we can 
head for the Ben and Jerry's. Or, you know, there are all kinds of ways in which people deal with that, some indulging in, in sense pleasures. I, I had a, a career bad day once, came home at noon, was so upset I couldn't, I just was not, and so I went to a movie. You know, didn't help. What was playing was Black Sunday. <laughs> But it was long. <laughs> That's, you know, the kind of sensual indulgence. We don't want to be unhappy. We don't want sadness. We don't want pain so much that we will damage ourselves and others to make it go away. The other way of making it go away, <clears throat> but that doesn't mean that creme brulee is not good. You know, and the Buddha was asked once, how many lay people have you got who are, who are um, practicing the Dharma? And he said, not just one, but thousands. He said, these are lay people who are enjoying sense pleasures and they are independent in the teacher's dispensation, which means that they don't have a teacher anymore. They're independent. So they are functioning, awakened beings, living a lay life, enjoying sense pleasures, but not being controlled by them, not being the slaves of them. You know, if you, if you, have, if you have to get what you want, then you're a slave to that wanting. You're not free. You know, freedom is, free, is the ability to be yes or no. So there's nothing wrong with sense pleasures. The fifth of the precepts is about drugs and alcohol. And, you know, there is, there is a temperance streak in Dharma circles. You know, if you've ever listened to someone apologize for having a glass of wine on Sunday, I mean, I've heard that more than once. It's always interesting to me that the glass of wine comes on Sunday. <laughs> And, you know, the first time I ever took the precepts in a big formal way, Thich Nhat Hanh does a you know, whole room full of people, full prostrations, and, and uh, he's very clear about the fifth precept. No alcohol. And he has his reasons. And if you read in uh, one of the magazines, Tricycle or something, Noah Levine, 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 uh, had an article about how the fifth precept means the fifth precept means no alcohol. And as a recovering alcoholic, he knows how important that is. But no drugs and alcohol to the point of heedlessness. What happens in a hospice situation? Isn't palliative care about that? Does that mean no aspirin or Tylenol for the headache mm-hmm. or... Something heavier for the migraine? It's not a bright line. It's not a... It's it's that, you know, maybe if if we're not able to navigate that, that's a a way of anesthetizing ourselves to the unpleasant experience. So it may be used unskillfully, 
and maybe not. It requires insight and um, recognition. Now these, these are about the ways in which we live with other people. And it's, like I say, there's no bright line, no, it's not rule-based. It's insight-based and wisdom-based. I'm reminded of the story where the Buddha he was at Kosambi, and I think it was, he was a, it's the incident was usually referred to as the quarrel at Kosambi, where the monks started squabbling over, I don't need to go into the issue, but it's a great novel, by the way, called Intrigue at Kosambi, which was written uh, as an historical piece by a, a senior student. It's really quite excellent. You can find it uh, on Amazon, Intrigue at Kosambi. It's, it's a, in a novel format. Anyway, the monks are squabbling, and the Buddha says, you know, come on, you guys, cool it. Maybe not quite in so many words, but... They said, you know, we'll take care of it, don't worry. And of course they didn't, so he, the Buddha, left. And he went off to find his cousin, Anuruddha, who was living in the forest with three or four other monks. He comes to Anuruddha and he says, you guys get along here? You guys get along okay? And Anuruddha said, yeah. Buddha says, so how, did you, how do you do that? I just left these guys back, they can't do it. He said, well, I regard it as such a blessing that I have these companions in my life that I say, why not set aside what I am minded to do and do instead what they are minded to do? And they see things the same. And so we live together as, as milk and water. It's a pretty high standard, but it requires attention to our own impulses, our own cravings, our own desires, and where other people are at, because other people have these, the same mixture of unpleasant and tanha. And it's a koan. It's not, like I say, it's not rule-based. I have a friend, I can't remember if I've told this story to you guys before, I have a friend in New York who's part of the uh, uh, literati and she was invited to a party in one of those apartments on the Upper East Side where the apartment is the whole floor and the elevator's open and you're in somebody's foyer and, you know, it's there. And it was a, a party for a woman from the Congo. Her name was Miriam Bahimba. She was in New York because there was a price on her head in, in uh, Kinshasa because she was an activist in uh, um, combating the culture of uh, weaponized rape in the Congo. You know, one army comes through and every female between 8 and 80 becomes a victim. And then two weeks later, the guys who are chasing them come through and it's the same thing. And so she'd been outspoken and working on that. And I don't think it was like a mafia hit, but I think people said, get rid of her. She was in New York. And she was telling her story to a collection of people. And it came time in the evening where the hostess said, well, what can we do for you? Which usually means, who do we make the checkout to? And she said, well, you know, really, 
what we need are guns. We don't even need to use them, but we need them to know we have them. And, and my friend said what was interesting was that within about 15, 20 minutes, 80% of the people had left. And the people who were left wrote the checks. As a Cohen, you know, do you write the check or not? Because life comes to you this way. And the invest- I've, I've posed this, this scenario to people in a number of Dharma scenes. There's not agreement. Some people would, some people wouldn't. There's not a right answer. But there is your answer. And, if, and the process is to, is to have you look inside and, dis- and discover you know, the insight into your own intentions, your own understanding. So the heart of the, the Buddha's practice here is, is in the heart of the Eightfold Path. And it's about, it's about that one, it's the same Dharma. It just shows up in a broader context. And it's not just an accessory, and it's not a precondition. It's not, I'll get my act together and then I'll, my meditation will be really good. The happiness of the Buddha is the happiness of walking around, not just sitting on the cushion. Let me take a few minutes for comments or questions or disagreements, even. Please. Who did you, who were you referring to when you were talking about that the precepts were the same precepts as the giants. Uh, the, the giants, J-A-I-N, is, oh, was giants. A, so the giants. They're, they were a, a sex, sometimes people pronounce it Jane. Oh, okay. But I think it's pronounced Jane, but I am not really, I'm, I'm a community level scholar. <laughs> I don't have an appointment anywhere. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, it, it was ambient in the culture. Uh-huh. You know, the Brahmins held the same the same views. Those were the ethical principles. Yeah. So another clarification: What were you saying, Cohen? A Cohen? Oh my gosh! C O A G N. No, no. That's what you think, Cohen. K O A N. It's a it's a word that that is for um, those the the Zen uh, questions that you know. What is the sound of one hand clapping? And you, you know, or one of my favorites is just unthing. Unthing. You know, there are, there are koans, there are questions that are put to students by the teacher for the purpose of driving them inward to examine. Does, does a dog have a Buddha nature? Oh, that's easy. Really? Absolutely. Sound is, occurs in our neurology. Right? If there's no ear, there's no sound. It's just, it's, you know, sound is something that happens in our organism. That one's easy. <laughs> Do you write the check for the guns? That's, that's a question. 
Yeah. Um, could you spell and then again just summarize the definition of Tana? T-A-N-H-A. And the definition is thirst. It's a kind of desire that we experience as in the same kind of with the same kind of imperative that we experience thirst or hunger. It's organism-based. That's my understanding. Yeah. Please. Do you now have the answers to the koans? (laughs) (laughs) Which koan? Unthing. Unthing? Well, unthing is... You're you're of age. I mean, you should have the answers. <laughs> well, you know, one of the things about it, the, there are no such things as right answers to the Cohens, but there are such things as wrong answers. <laughs> which is a Cohen. Which is which is which is a Cohen. Yeah. Well, and please. I thought you did an amazing job of covering the territory. <laughs> oh, well, thank you. Thank you. Years of experience. Yeah. But unthing, back to unthing. Unthing, unthing is just, is just, is just a, uh, a uh, finger pointing at emptiness. You know, there's a story about, there's a, there's a Zen story about, Zen is a finger pointing at the moon. But if you mistake the finger for the moon, what is to be gained? I always, I, you know, because the words we use to point at our experience are the words, and they're pointing. If you mistake the finger for the moon, what, what I like to say is, if you mistake the finger for the moon, you're left with a finger. <laughs> I so in the in 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 the in the Western in the Western tradition we might conclude something like this by by what do you call it? It's not a benediction. It's a when you say "Go forth and cling no more." <laughs> Thank you guys. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.